This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. I think I finally got this fine piece of equipment fixed up. I've got to say that I'm glad Luke read that song. I heard it for the first time years ago, led by one of the great singers of the Brotherhood. And I've loved it ever since. has some real high notes, so I haven't really led it. I may drop it a little bit and lead it sometime. But it's a wonderful song that we won't have to cross Jordan alone, and we won't have to. Lord willing, we'll be part of it, and we'll have brothers and sisters who will be part of it, and most of all, have a Lord who will be part of it. Tonight, I want to talk about remembering the goodness of God. I think I know, and I think that God knows our propensity to forget. My wife will tell you that I'm an expert at that, in forgetting. But I think that may be why God wants his children to remember his goodness. He also, I think, surely knows that remembering his goodness is something that really helps us. Go back in the Old Testament and to a quacking Israel facing a daunting enemy. God said, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. If thou shalt say in thy heart, These nations are more than I. How can I dispose them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them. Thou shalt remember what Joshua, what Jehovah thy God said unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. Thou shalt not be afraid of them. Thou shalt remember what Jehovah thy God did unto Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials which thine eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm whereby Jehovah thy God brought thee out so shall Jehovah thy God do unto all the peoples of whom thou art afraid. 
You see, remembering how God's goodness has helped us, helps us to overcome fear. Now, we haven't had the experience that the ancients had. You and I haven't, at least as far as I know, haven't fled from Pharaoh. But on the other hand, is there anybody here of much age who doesn't have his or her own stories to tell about what has happened in your life or in my life? We haven't raised, faced any evil rulers, haven't faced any chariots filled with soldiers, but haven't we faced difficulties of other kinds? What about payments that we can't pay? And I can speak about that one. Because though I've forgotten a lot of things, I still remember that after I married a young lady, between our second and third years in college, God gave me an opportunity to preach. We went to a little church out the way. And we would arrive and I'd teach the morning class. I would preach that morning. We would go home with one of the families. There we would eat. And that afternoon we would visit, we'd return for service, and at the end of the evening service, I would be handed a check. And you know what I did? I had to hurry back to Nashville, Tennessee, and get that little check and get it in the bank because the check I had given for church was going to be a bad check if that check wasn't there and it wasn't on time. In fact, we didn't eat the fancy food. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the little lady I married was a good cook. I weighed about 129 when we married and after we'd been there two years and finished our schooling, I was somewhere around 160, so she could cook, and I could eat. So we got along very fine, but there were problems, and we didn't always eat the best food. We didn't eat a lot of steak and things like that because we had things to pay that it was hard for us to pay. And I dare say that some others of us have had the same kind of difficulties maybe some of us have been at work and the bosses who apparently had some kind of problems in their life decided they'd take it out on the employees 
And here you and I are sitting as employees. And they work on us. And you and I have a problem. We have family problems, don't we? And sometimes we can't handle it by sitting down and talking one to another. I've come to shake a little when the sweet little girl I married said, Buzz, that's my nickname, we need to talk. And we'll sit down, we'll talk it over, and we'll work it over. But we try to avoid the problems. But let me mention one that maybe all of us are undergoing. What about a church that doesn't have a church house? I see one sitting right in front of me. And if you were at the old building, the day I talked about it, I started by saying, I don't like it. I didn't. And I don't. But you know what? If I don't just look at what is going on and I forget what is happening for the future and what may be ours and what may become ours and what we may enjoy, then I don't have a problem. If there's going to be a problem, it's a problem that I make for my own self. Remembering the goodness of God. Is something that is going to enable us. It's going to be something that is going to help us. And it will help us remember how God provided and has helped us over the years and give us courage to overcome our present hardships. Now I want to look at a different passage. And this one is in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles, chapter 16. And it describes when David led God's people in restoring the Ark of the Covenants to return it to its rightful place. 
And he did so at the end by teaching them a song of thanks to the Lord, saying, and this is where I began reading, and this will bring us to the end, beginning in First Chronicles 16, and I'm going to start in verse 7. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph, and his brethren to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among his people. Sing to him. Sing palms to him, psalms to him. Take of all his wondrous work. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the world which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham. And his oath to Isaac and confirmed to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan also the allotment of your inheritance. When you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him, strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, 
O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. The world also is firmly established it shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field rejoice and all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is mercy forever. And say, save us. O oh God, our salvation, gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Conclusion, let us always remember that God's provision, God's deliverance, and God's promises can and will always change things. And if there's anybody in this assembly who in your life needs to change in your relationship with God, if you will just reach out to God stand up and walk down this aisle and let it be known God is ready to receive you shall we stand and sing last night at our um, we have a Bible study in our home uh, the old log cabin, uh, when the weather's good enough for people to be able to get up the driveway. Um, we had a Bible study last night in our home, and um, some guys came and they asked me a very important question. Uh, they're young believers, very zealous, and they said, you know, if I do something out of just sheer obedience, but I don't feel anything, I'm not moved by love, I'm not moved by by any sense of, of, of affection,
toward God. I'm just doing it because it's obedience. Should I do it? And I said, absolutely. We are called to obey God. We are called to obey God. Um, regardless of our disposition, regardless of what we are feeling, we are called to walk in obedience. But um, we got talking, and one of them said, you know, you need to put this on film. So, so here I am. I'm going to put it on film here for a few minutes. And I would like to talk to you, especially you young believers, about, about loving God and about obedience and how those two things go together. Now, first of all, let's talk about how do we grow in our love for God. You know, um, when I was a young believer, I, would, I was keenly aware of the fact that I needed to grow in my love for God. And my question was, how? You know? And I'm still aware of that. As long as we're walking here on this planet, we're going to have a need to, to, be, well, to be loving God. And um, when I was young, what we would do, you know, you would go to these meetings or go to revivals or go to some conference and and it was all very excitable. You know, the preaching was very good. The music was very good. You were around other believers. And it seemed like, you know, your love for God would, would increase, at least your zeal. But then after a couple of days, you know, after the conference is over, you find that you're kind of back in the same place. And I knew that wasn't right. But, you know, how do we grow in our love for God, I mean in a biblical way, in a way that's really going to uh, remain. Well, I'd like to share that with you. And um, I find that Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, is very, very helpful in this matter. Let me just read it. Paul says, I, I urge you, brethren, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, do you see here, Paul is asking the greatest thing he could possibly ever ask of a person, to offer their life as a sacrifice, not to another man, not to uh, the church or some ecclesiastical organization, but to offer their lives as a living sacrifice to God. Now, what, what could be strong enough to motivate a human being to literally give their life away? the most precious thing they possess, to give their life away for the sake of God, in the name of God. Well, Paul tells us here, actually. It's embedded here in this verse. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's urging them to give their life away by the mercies of God. Now, what are those mercies? Well, actually, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans explaining what those mercies are. He starts off in Romans 1 through 3, generally, we can say that he's talking about the radical depravity of man, that we are sinners, that we are enemies of God, that we deserve God's wrath. But then he gets to, to 4 and 5, and, and he talks about the salvation, the mercies of God in Jesus Christ, what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ, and how that is the greatest revelation of his love, of his mercy, of his grace. And then he goes on, and in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he tells us how to live the Christian life, even in the midst of struggling with sin, how to live the Christian life, and how we will come out of this thing victorious because of the one who's working in us, this glorious and mighty God. And then he gets to chapters 9, 10, 
and 11, and he's talking about not just Israel. People misunderstand this, but the whole relationship between Israel and the Gentile nations and how God is evangelizing or doing a redemptive work in the whole planet with all peoples. And in the end, we come to the conclusion that he is a great and a faithful God. So what are we saying? How do we grow in our in our devotion to God? How do we grow in our self-sacrifice? How do we grow in our love for God? The answer is, the more we discover about God and the attributes, the excellencies, the beauties of God that are revealed in the scriptures and, and particularly through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more we know who God is, the more our love will grow. Now, let me explain to you how this works. Uh, The Bible teaches very, very clearly that a man is born with a a heart that is turned against God. At best, it is cold as a stone. It's, It's like an inanimate thing in its relationship with God. It wants nothing to do with God, and it does not respond to God, but it does respond to every sort of wicked stimuli. Well, that person, that unconverted, unregenerated person, the more they learn about the beauties, the excellencies of God, the more they'll hate him. That's what Romans 7 is about. The more God's nature is revealed to a sinful man through the revelation of the law, the more that man is going to kick against that law because he hates God, he hates God's righteousness, he hates God's holiness, and he hates God's law. But if you're a Christian, you're not that man. If you're a Christian, your heart has been regenerated. It's been made new, and it has new affections. If you're truly a Christian, the more your heart learns about who God is, and especially what God has done for you in Christ, the more you learn that doctrine, the more you grasp that theological knowledge, what's going to happen is going to draw out of you your affections, and those affections are going to drive you obedience. So, you know, just think about it for a moment, especially you young believers. How little believers actually study the attributes and works of God. How little preaching we hear on the attributes and works of God. Now, I think we're beginning to understand why people, even God's people, are so um, dull in their love for God is there's so little knowledge of God. We don't grow in our love for God. Well, let me put it this way. Imagine, I don't know if any of you studied physics, but let me just give you a little physics problem here. Let's say that I'm, I'm laying on the ground and flat on my back, and you look over there and you see me laying on the ground, and then you see me uh, grab a hold with two hands, my two hands. You see me grab my belt as I'm laying on the ground, and I start pulling up fiercely, even violently, on my belt. And you're kind of curious, so you walk over and you go, Brother Paul, uh, what, what are you doing? And I say, well, I'm trying to get up. And they go, what? I say, well, I'm trying to get up. I'm, I'm trying to get up. And you say, well, Brother Paul, have you ever studied physics? Because if you if you'd studied physics, you would know that in order to get up that way by pulling on your belt, you have to be acted upon by an outside force that has the strength to lift you 
off the ground. You can't lift yourself off the ground. It's the proverbial, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do you see? That's what most believers are trying to do. They'll go to a conference or they'll read a book and they'll get all zealous and kind of like twisting up a wind-up toy, you know? Just you go and you hear the wonderful music and all this thing and you just get so twisted up and wound up and the problem is though it just runs down really quick. It spins out and in a few days all the maybe even boasts you made about how much you love God seem to come to nothing. Just poof like that. What you need is something else. And, and this is going to shock some of you young believers. You're going to sit there and go, oh my, that can't be true. You, what you need is theology. You say, well, I don't want any of that theology stuff. Well, just listen to what you're saying when you say that. Theology comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and the Greek word logos, which is talking about a a discourse or a word. When you say, I don't want any of that theology, Brother Paul, what you're saying is, I don't want to hear a word about God. I don't want to do a study about God. I don't want to listen to a discourse or read a discourse or dissertation on God. Well, if that's true about you, you've got a really big problem. Because if you know God as a Christian, then you're going to want to know more about him. And that's what theology is about. You know, sometimes young Christian, I hear people say this. You know, they'll tell new believers, you know, when you're reading the Bible, you know, after you read a passage, ask yourself, what is this saying about about you? What is this saying about you and what you need to do and who you are? That's the first thing you need to think about. No, it's not. That's not the first thing you need to think about at all. Matter of fact, that's the last thing you need to think about. When you read the Bible, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what is this saying about God? What is it revealing to me about who God is? That's what's important. Because honestly, if your heart has truly been regenerate, if the Spirit of God through the Spirit of God, you've been born again, then the more you know about God, and especially God as He's revealed in the cross of Christ, the more you know about Him, the more you're going to love Him. And that's why we, we grow in knowledge. We grow in grace. You know, I have spent so many years of my life um, running around the world preaching and I'm getting older and people say, you know, but your zeal seems to just keep growing. How is that? Well, it's not because uh, I have some special gift. It's because I study God. I want to know who this person is because the more I see of him, the more I want to be like him, the more I want to trust him. Uh, the more I want to glorify Him, speak of Him. You see, one of the greatest problems that can happen is when a people, when they are ignorant of God, in the absence of a true knowledge of God, you'll always fill in the gaps with something false, with something false. So my encouragement to you, if you want to grow in the love of God, what should you do? Study the scriptures and study the scriptures, not to find these life principles to give you your best life now. Study the scriptures in order to know this person who created you and redeemed you and loves you. 
His excellencies know no bounds, his beauties, his powers. You know, when, when we get to heaven, I, I hear a lot of people, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. Uh, why? You want to walk down streets of gold? You want to swing on gates of pearl? I mean, you only do that for a few months, I would imagine, and become kind of boring. What makes heaven heaven? Heaven is heaven because there is an infinite beauty there that cannot be exhausted. And I'm not talking about heaven as a creation. I'm talking about the creator who made it. You see, everything is finite. Everything has an end to it. You can search it out to the final point and then there's nothing more to know. But with regard to God, that's different. He is infinite. So throughout eternity, we will be tracking down, tracing these excellencies of his attributes and works, these beauties, these graces. And at the end of a thousand eternities, we'll never reach the end because there is no end. That's the beauty of heaven. It's the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is my encouragement to you? If you want to be obedient and obedient for the sake of of your love for God and his love for you, then where do you start? You start in the scriptures and you start by studying who God is. Who is he? Who is he? Now, having said that, someone asked me, they said, well, Brother Paul, is there ever times when you don't feel like anything and you obey? And I say, yes. As a matter of fact, it's quite frequent. You know, um, for many, many years, I've lived my life with a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And sometimes when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is grimace. And then I, I think about how I'm going to get out of bed with the least amount of pain. And uh, sometimes it's, it's even nauseating. It's, it's not very fun. And uh, then I think about all I need to do in the mission, the emails to answer, the uh, missionaries to speak with, the, the things to write and prepare, the problems to solve, and, and everything. After, after not 10 years or 20 years, but more than 30 years of doing the same thing. And sometimes I don't feel like anything. I, I get out of bed, sometimes I, there's no sense, consciousness of the presence of God. Sometimes you get out of bed and you just, you're just tired. But you get out of bed. Why? Because it's not feeling. It's what you know. You know that He's worthy. And you know that He is. And you know that He is faithful. So whether you feel anything or not, you know that you need to get up. You need to study the Scriptures. You need to obey the scriptures and you need to keep walking. And it's in those times, I believe, it's in those times when I feel like nothing. It's just darkness everywhere. And yet I walk in obedience. I feel like in those times I am glorifying God more than in those mountaintop experiences because what I'm doing, I'm doing purely by faith, by faith in how trustworthy he is. There's a passage of scripture that a lot of young believers uh, probably never even read, but it is very, very powerful. And I want to read it to you to bring this, uh, 
this short admonition that has gotten a lot more lengthy than I supposed it would, um, I, I want to read it to you before I bring this to a close. And he says this, it's in Isaiah chapter 50. He says, verse 10, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? Now listen, listen to what it says, young believer. That walks in darkness and has no light. He's not seeing anything. He's not feeling anything. Goes on and says, Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You see, when you know God, you don't have to feel anything. You don't have to feel anything from above and you don't have to feel anything from within. Oh, those feelings will come. There will be times of great affection. There will be senses of of his love for you and all those things. And they're marvelous and wonderful. And I wouldn't take away from them at all. But there are also going to be times when we see this in verse 10. Darkness and no light. And what are we to do? We're to trust in the name of the Lord. We're to trust in what we know about God. And and so many people talking about faith today and talking about trust, but I really have to doubt many of the things they're saying. Because when I ask them about who God is, and I I ask them to tell me what they believe about who God is, they have almost no answer. And yet it's impossible to have a biblical faith apart from a biblical knowledge of who God is and what God has promised, you see. So when we know that from the study of the scriptures, then we can walk in darkness. We can walk when there is no light, when there is no feeling, and we can be pleasing and honoring to God. Now look at the warning he gives. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Now, Indirectly, we can apply this this way. There are some people who are just not content with faith in the Word of God and sometimes walking in darkness with no feeling and no sense of light. Now, they can't, they can't function that way. So they have to have something. So if there is no light from God at that moment, they'll fake one. Artificial light, artificial fire, false fire. That's not something that you want to do. Don't live your life jumping from one experience to another. Don't live your life going to maybe church services or conferences or camp meetings where some preacher gets you all fired up and then you walk in that for a while and then you fall again. Don't do that. Don't make some artificial fire and then walk in the light of your fire. Instead, live your life studying the Word of God. Live your life in prayer. Live your life seeking out not merely principles from the Word of God, but the God of the Word. Get to know who He is, and then you'll be able to walk. And yes, yes, there will be times of great emotion, of great awareness of God's presence. There will be those times, and they're wonderful And you should obey God in the midst of those times. But there are also going to be times of testing where everything is pulled back and it seems like you're left all alone. In those times, you can glorify God more than in in any mountaintop experience. And so as a new believer, and that's who I'm trying to give this to, please, 
study the Word. Start in Genesis, read to Revelation, then do it over and over and over again. And devote yourself to prayer. Not just intercession for needs or for friends or for the mission field, but just communion. Walking with God, and you'll do well. Well, I hope that was helpful to you, and God bless. Two issues must be settled in your heart if you're going to walk with God. And I would say to you who are here today that do not know Jesus Christ, these two issues would bring you all the fulfillment in life that you long for. The first issue is this. You must know deeply in your heart that God loves you. And the second issue is you must know deeply in your heart that you truly love God. The Word of God says in 1 John, the 4th chapter, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. The King James says we love Him because He first loved us, but that's not what the Greek says. The original language says we love because He first loved us. You see, this kind of love not just the human affection that lost people can have. This kind of love is a love that has no strings attached. It's a love that would say, I love you. I love you. I love you. Regardless of how you behave. Regardless of what you do. Regardless of whether you do what I want you to do or not. I love you. It's a love that can only come from God Himself. And you see, I cannot love like that unless I know deep inside that I am loved like that. This is my wife. Stand up, my dear one. Forty-seven years we've been married. And we don't look that old, I know. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. I crippled my wife's personality. In the early years of our marriage. I crippled her. By demanding that she be what I wanted her to be, do what I wanted her to do, and expressing my displeasure when she didn't. And I almost destroyed her personhood. And then one day God spoke to my heart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Jesus love me? 
That's how I'm to love her. And one day, and I don't know how to describe this, Brother Tim, just something you said made me know that you would understand this. But one day it was like heaven opened and love was poured out on me from heaven itself. And I broke and I wept. And instantly I saw that I had not loved my wife that way. And I called her to the study. And she came. And when she got to the door, I fell into her arms broken and weeping and sobbing and asking for her forgiveness because I had not loved her with the kind of love that God has for me. And she reminded me the other day, we were speaking of it, and this has been years and years ago, but she reminded me the other day that the next thing I said was, I did not love those people at my church where I had been pastor prior to that. You see, we love because He first loved us. And only in proportion do I know the love of God can I love with the love of God. Our motivation for holy living is intoxication with God's love. When I was a young pastor, I was associate pastor of a church in Roanoke, Virginia. I was in my early 20s, early to mid-20s. And there was a guy that I'd gone to school with named Joe Fitzgerald. We'd gone to junior high school and high school together. I hadn't seen Joe in years. He'd become a drug addict, an alcoholic, stayed stoned and drunk. And I wanted to share Jesus Christ with him. And I would spend hours with Joe. I took him to my home. And one night in the middle of the night, the phone rang. And he, I talked to him about Jesus Christ. And he called in the middle of the night. And he said, Jerry, I've met this, name, this man named Phil. Would you come down here and talk to him and burn his ears like you burned mine? And I didn't understand at that time. But what was burning him was the fact that the Spirit of Christ was tormenting those demons that were in him. And I did not know that much about that at that time. And so I spent much time with Joe, trying to share Jesus Christ with him and loving him and caring about him. And I'd go to the jail to see him when he would get picked up again on another drug charge. But one day I had finished work and I had a meeting later that evening, so I didn't go home. And I just knelt down by the chair there in my study and and, and began to pray some. And I had this impression, go see Joe again. So I got up and he just lived up the street about four blocks. And so I went up the street about four blocks and knocked on the apartment door. He's still living with his mom and dad. Here he was as old as I and he was living with his mom and dad. And I knocked on the door and his mother came to the door and she opened the door and she said, where have you been? She said, I've been waiting on you to come. She had heard me share about Jesus Christ with her son. I had not talked to her much except to greet her. And she came to Christ right there in that apartment that afternoon or that evening. And I left that city and went someplace else to be a pastor of a church 
And she would write us letters, wonderful letters, and she would always sign it. She was so overcome with the grace of God. I believe that woman was saved and filled with the Spirit at the same moment. And she was just overwhelmed with the grace and love of God for her. And she would always sign her letters in God's great love and mine. I want to share with you, in the time that remains, six wonderful ways in the New Testament, six wonderful truths about God's love. But let me remind you of a scripture that's found in Psalm 26, verse 3. It says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes. The New Living Translation says, For I am constantly aware of your unfailing love. The first wonderful truth we look at that talks about the love of God has already been referred to this morning when Brother Charles prayed, I believe it was. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Who has that scripture for us? I've had the pastor pass out those scriptures and want you to read them. Okay, Robert, read that for us. Profound mystery. Before the foundation of the earth, when this building was built, there was a foundation laid. Before there was ever the first particle of sand, God loves you. He knew you. And for reasons we will never understand, He set His love upon you. And you're only His child because He put His love upon you. Amen. And if you're here today and you heard that testimony earlier by Brother Mark, I was blessed by that, brother. In your name, Mark, I was so blessed by that. But if you heard that testimony... And somehow down inside, your heart was stirred because you want what Brother Mark has found and what these others, you've heard in their voices as they pray, you've heard there's something you don't know. If your heart's been stirred, you can know that God loves you and wants you to be His own. So one of the profoundest mysteries is before the earth was ever, ever formed, Somehow, in eternity past, God knew me, God knew you, and He set His love upon you. The second scripture is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Who has that one for us? Okay, sir, please. Okay. There's another scripture that goes with that, and that's Romans 5 8, a wonderful verse. Yes, sir, please. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
this is, this is a second profound mystery about the love of God. Not only did He love you before He ever created the world, before He ever laid the foundation of it, before He ever spoke the first molecule into existence. But here we are as human beings who in Adam sinned against God, chose our own way, and we who've been born since then have chosen our own way, and we have sinned against God, and yet amazing, amazing, amazing grace, God has loved us in spite of our sin. And as Brother Mark said, it doesn't matter what you've done. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He was proving the love of God for you. And every sin you've ever committed, every sin every human being has, been, has ever committed was put on Jesus Christ. And there hanging on the cross, He bore the full wrath of His Father for your sins and for mine. It says God proved His love for us. And that while we were shaking our fist in the face of God and going our own way, He says to me and He says to you, I love you. John 17, verse 23. Yes, sir. Please stand up if you will and read that if you can. I in them and you in me, that they may be comforted to one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. The third wonderful truth about the love of God is the fact that the Father loves you as much as He loves you. His Son. I can't comprehend that. If I were to stand beside Jesus Christ before the Father, He would say, I love you, Jerry, as much as I love Jesus Christ, my Son. And that's why Paul would write that we can never, never know the depth and breadth and length and the height of it. I can't comprehend that. I have a son who's in his 40s. He's a businessman, has his own company, has a heart for missions. He knows doctrinally about the love of God. He has a heart and compassion for lost people and for missions. But he has said, I want to swim in the river of God's love. I don't want to just taste it. I want to swim in it. Swim in it. And just last Sunday in our church service, he sat there with his handkerchief. He cried practically the whole time. He came to the end of the time and he said to the church, he said, I said to you, I just didn't want to 
have a sip of God's love. I want a river to swim in. And he said, I want you to know that today I have swam in the river of God's love. The New Living Translation translates it this way. I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one. Then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. Dear ones, God loves you with all that He is. There's another wonderful verse. It's John 16, verse 27. Who has that for us? Thank you, sir. The Father Himself loves you. There are different words in the Greek language for love. If I remember correctly, there are about four different words for love. We say, I love mom, I love apple pie, I love a good ball game. Same word. Very limited language is English. But in Greek, they could say it different ways. There are two Greek words that are used, some think interchangeably. I don't think they're used interchangeably because of the way they're used. But there's the word agape or agapao, and there's the word philos or phileo. When it talks about brotherly love, that's the word that's used. It's phileo. It's a tender affection. This is the only place this happens in the New Testament. But in this verse, what Jesus is saying is that the Father loves you with tender affection. When I saw Norm the other day, it was been a long time since I've seen Norm. He's a dear brother I've known for years and years. When I saw him, I hugged him. And later in the kitchen, when we were getting ready to, for dinner or something, I, I just was so thankful and conscious of being with Norm again. And, and I just walked over and just hugged him. Because he's like a son to me. That's tender affection. It just welled up inside of me. I couldn't help it. And I just wanted to hug him. The Father loves you that way. He doesn't just love you from a distance. He just doesn't love you and sacrifice Jesus Christ for you. Although that would be enough in of itself. But the Father loves you with tender affection. Let it roll over you. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. Some Christians live with the attitude that God is a policeman. And He's just waiting for us to step out of line. Do something wrong. Correct us. 
And that's not the way it is at all. It was the Pharisees that were uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus. It was not the sinner. You think about the woman that had the bad reputation who came to that house where the Pharisee had Jesus for dinner and there they were around the table reclining. They laid down to eat. I always thought that was a better idea. They laid down to eat. And she came around and she let her hair down, which a woman would never do in public. And she wept and washed his feet with her tears and dried it with her hair. She was not uncomfortable in his presence because she knew she was loved and accepted and forgiven just like she was. John 15, verse 9. Who has that one? John 15, verse 9. Pastor Tim, read that for us, please, sir. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Not only does the Father love you as much as He loves His Son, but the Son, Jesus Christ, loves you as much as the Father loves Him. That's infinite. And then the fourth wonderful truth about the love of God is God loves you with an unshakable, an unchangeable love. This is not like human love. If somebody hurts us, we withhold love from them. God's not like that. Norm, read for us that scripture that I gave to you. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Just listen to it as Norm reads it. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. We will be us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ. Is he who died? Yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of God, for the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, 
nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I began by saying the two issues must be settled in your heart if you're going to walk with God. The first being knowing deeply in your heart that God loves you and secondly, knowing deeply in your heart that you love God. You see, in that passage, it indicates quite clearly that what takes us through the tribulation or the peril or the sword is knowing that God loves us. And we do go through difficulties and hardships and pain and disappointment and sorrow. We do go through that. But in those times, I need to know, in spite of that, it has not changed God's love. There's nothing that says God loves me less. But His love is unshakable and unchangeable. And that somehow in the midst of this sorrow and disappointment and heartache and pain, He is using this for my highest good. There is not one thing, not one thing in your life that God has not purposed to use for your eternal good. It doesn't always feel good to me. It doesn't always look good to me. It doesn't always make sense to me. But from God's vantage point, He is saying, my child, my child, in my infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love, I'm doing this for your eternal good. That's why I need to know inside, steadfastly, sure and true, God loves me like He loves His Son. Jesus loves me like the Father loves Him. That's got to be a settled issue in my heart. And then we come to the sixth and final truth about the love of God. And this is found in John 14, 21. Who has that for us? Please, Charles. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is, he loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Romans 5, verse 5. I want you to listen very carefully. We live in a day in America of correct doctrine for certain churches. But we're very low when it comes to experience.
your pastor poured out his soul before the Lord. And in his prayer, he prayed about what we see in the book of Acts. You have to know when you look at church life today and you read the book of Acts, we're not even close. Why? I think one reason is we've let certain groups make us afraid of the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet you cannot explain the life of Jesus Christ all the way from his birth to his enthronement apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot explain the early church apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot explain revivals in the church apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot explain the life of Charles G. Finney apart from the Holy Spirit. Or John and Charles Wesley. Or George Whitfield. You cannot explain it. And leave out the person of the Holy Spirit. We must not be afraid of the free, wonderful operation of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to know the truth that He loves us because of the cross. He wants us to know the truth of His love because He tells us. But He also wants us to know the truth of His love because He embraces us from heaven and we experience it. You see, I have a precious wife and we love each other dearly. And there are times she tells me, Jerry, I love you. And I know she means it. And then there are times she gives me gifts or baked apple pie for me. And that tells me she loves me. But then there are times when she wraps her arm around me and holds me. And I experience it. The Father wants you to know because He tells you. And the Father wants you to know because He's given wonderful gifts to you. But the Father wants you to know by embracing you. And there are myriads of Christians who have never known what it means to be embraced by the love of God from heaven. Thomas Goodwin was an old Puritan. His writings are still in print. And Thomas Goodwin used a wonderful illustration. He said it's like this. He said a father is walking with his son down the pathway. And the son walks along holding the hand of his dad, knowing that his father loves him. But all of a sudden on the pathway, the father stops. And he picks his son up in his arms and he pulls him close and he holds him. And then the son knows the love by experience. He feels it in the embrace of his father. The Holy Spirit has been given 
a person just like Jesus to reveal Jesus Christ to us so that He's here, present, real, now. When you and I stand in His presence, we're going to be absolutely overwhelmed with the ocean of love that flows from His personhood. He wants us to have foretastes of heaven now. And what Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which has been given unto us. He was writing that at a time when the Holy Spirit was operating so freely and so so powerfully in the church and they experienced the love of God inside. The word poured out there means profusely. They lived in a time when the Holy Spirit was poured out into their hearts profusely so that it wasn't just God loves you because His Word says it. It wasn't just God loves you because Jesus died for you. But God loves you and they felt the embrace of the Father from heaven by the Holy Spirit in their heart and their soul. And that's what gives you the anchor in life to go through what you must go through. And that's the only thing, dear ones, that I know of that will so change your heart and life that that kind of love will flow from you to others. I'm aware that there are those here who did not have good fathers. My wife grew up with an alcoholic father. I had a wonderful dad. My dad lived to the age of 86. He just died about five years ago, four and a half years ago. I was an only child. And my dad prayed for me. He gave me gifts of clothes. There was no doubt in my mind that he loved me. His dad did not love him. So my dad was dying of cancer, stomach cancer. He had been a six foot robust man. He had shrunk down to just above skin and bones. And I knew it was time to say goodbye to him. And we'd made this trip to Virginia to spend two or three weeks there in his final days. And I went to his room one night. We talked about heaven. We listened to music together. We talked about heaven. My dad was a musician. And I said to him, I said, Dad, you're hearing music in heaven like you've never heard before. But I went, I know it's time to say goodbye to him. I'd have been over his hospital bed and put my arms around that frail body and hugged him. And he put his face, his arms around mine, 
neck and put his face right against mine. Kept patting me on the back. And he did something that my dad did not often do. But he kissed me multiple times on the cheek. And I said to him, I said, Dad, I love you. And I'm going to miss you. And he patted me on the back and kissed me on the cheek multiple times. And he says, son, I love you. I love you. I love you. Now let me ask you a question. Does God love you less than my dad loved me? No. A thousand times no. My dad was a sinful human being just like I am, but he loved me so much and so dearly and so deeply. But a thousand times upon thousands of times, God loves you that way. God wants to put his arms around you and say, my child, I love you. I love you. I love you. With all that I am, with all that I have, my dear child, I love you. I wonder, is your heart open for that love? Could you receive that love? You say, but I'm not worthy. Of course you're not. None of us are. This is the incredible thing. And God wants you just to open your heart to it. And accept it. And enjoy it. And as my son said, swim in it. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by radioguestlist.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.